Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The Coaches Network. Bringing the game together. Ronaldo told the Man United coaches every day I want to be the best in the world. It drove them mad. But you know what? He did it. The Coaches Network. Bringing the game together. Now listen to the Coaches Network, a podcast aiming to bring people at the heart of coach and player development together. My name is Coach Yas, a UEFA A licensed, FA Advanced Youth Award and FA Goalkeeper B licensed coach. With over 10 years of experience working in youth football from grassroots right through to Premier League academies. I'm currently operating as an affiliate tutor for the FA alongside working towards a Masters in Performance Football Coaching. Today I'm going to be joined by my co-host and the Coaches Network Analysis Specialist, Coach Ben. Ben is a UEFA A licensed coach who holds the FA Youth Award and a Masters in Sports Coaching, with 10 years of experience including working across the male and female youth development pathways, alongside a vast experience on individual, player and team performance analysis. And as part of our Insight series, we'll be joined by a range of individuals working across multiple disciplines within the coaching world in order to explore their journeys and dig deeper into their experiences so that we can leave you with some golden nuggets to help you reach your full potential. Right, guys, welcome back to another episode of the Coaches Network. I'm Coach Yas, and today I'm joined by a very special guest. I've got with me today Dan Michichi. Dan is a former MK Dons and England under-16s head um, youth coach, currently working at Arsenal as the lead under-15 and 16s coach. How are you, Dan? I'm well, thank you. Hope you're well too. Definitely. Um, again, thank you for having uh, having the time out of your week for, uh, to have this conversation this evening. Now, Dan, I'm not going to waste any time. I want to get straight into the heart of it. Where did the coaching journey begin for you? I guess it was when I left university. Really, I went to uni- I went to Loughborough University, and I was still a bit unsure of um, what direction I was going to take in terms of was I going to go sports science? Was I going to go more the football business direction. Um, I speak Italian, so and I'm conversational in Spanish. So uh, because of those skills as well, I was considering going the business route. Uh, did an MBA in football as well, and then um, a friend of mine introduced me to Paul Holder at Crystal Palace at the time. He's now uh, back at the FA, mm. and that was sort of the um, game changer for me. Really, I met Paul. He gave me an opportunity. And um, I went on a steep sort of learning curve at Crystal Palace from then on, really, for, for the next 12 months with him, himself and um, a guy called Dave Njai. Um, it was the year when Crystal Palace were in the Premier League under Ian Dowie. And then um, from there, um, sort of other opportunities opened up for me. So very grateful to Paul, really. Definitely. Um, you know, you, so you spent some time at Crystal Palace in the academy there. You moved over to Spurs after that, wasn't it? Yes, I did. So... Yes, it's incredible how these things work, really, because you can do all your qualifications and what have you, and they're obviously all very important. Um, Likewise, what's important is the connections you have and the impression you make on people. And even though if I look back now, I was 
well out of my depth when I was at Crystal Palace. Um, and I'm really grateful to Paul and um, David and Jai for being extremely patient with me. And um, I think the fact that I was very I'm a very curious coach and was very open minded um, and was willing to sort of um, take risks and try things. They um, they persevered with me, really. And then an opportunity came up at Tottenham with Chris Ramsey and John McDermott via Dave Njai at Palace. Um, he introduced me to Chris and again, was very fortunate looking back, got an opportunity at Tottenham. Um, where, where again, you know, it was a, it was a hell of a learning curve for me. Definitely. And you know, just, to, just to kind of give us a bit of a timeline then. So you was at Crystal Palace in what year? That would have been 2004 to 2005. Right. And then you moved over to the Spurs after? Yeah, moved over to Spurs in 2005. So I was at Crystal Palace for 12 months. Moved across to Tottenham literally as... John McDermott had just been in the post about three weeks. Right. Um, Chris had just begun his role and they were recruiting new coaches, got introduced to them, did an interview, um, somehow got through it and then um, spent two and a half years there. Right. And at the end of those two and a half years, you've now moved over to MK Dons. So MK Dons, yeah. Academy manager role, is that correct? Yeah. And again, that came through, again, Dave enjoys connections with the Academy manager at MK. They've known each other many years. They, they had an academy that was one year old and, um, you know, they were looking to put a programme together <clears throat> and um, it was a difficult decision if I think look back on it because I was just starting to, it take probably taken me that long at Tottenham to sort of find my feet and feel like I belonged there really because the standard of coaching of Chris, John, Alex Inglethorpe was extremely high. And, um, you know, I was forever just trying to keep up with them, still am today. And um, I kind of got to a point where I thought, yeah, I understand the philosophy. I know what they want. Um, I think that I'm, I'm at an acceptable standard. Um, they started to trust me more. I went on a trip to um, away with the under-16s with them abroad. And then MK came about and... <clears throat> I remember getting a lot of advice off different people and the decision I made was go somewhere where you've got an opportunity to build something. MK Don's academy manager and myself shared the same vision mm. on how to develop players and how to play the game. And, um, you know, it was I, I took that opportunity really as opposed to sort of staying at Tottenham and, I would have had other opportunities there, but maybe not the ones that MK presented me with. So um, I took that, again, took that risk, really. Um, I remember the first game was MK Don's Tottenham that weekend. So I asked both both clubs if they wouldn't mind if I didn't work that weekend because I was just leaving one of the clubs and just joining the other. Yeah. And I remember, you know, the MK Don's boys were... You know, I hope they won't mind me saying this that in all the age groups, they were miles off Tottenham. Um, I mean, obviously, Tottenham had the benefit of John and Chris had now been there two and a half years and put things in place. MK were so young and obviously far less resourced than a Tottenham anyway. So you could argue Tottenham should be streets ahead of them, but I wasn't going to MK Dons to, to allow that to continue. Sure. Um, but that weekend, it was a real eye opener. I thought, gosh. We've got a lot of work to do here. 
Um, and, you know, I'm going to have to really raise my bar in order to um, help this club. Definitely. You know, you touched on the start of your journey at Palace, uh, you know, suggested that you might have been out of your depth there initially. Mm. Uh, you know, that's you've almost fast-tracked a little bit, you know, you've gone from Palace straight to Spurs, obviously, you know, going in at, at a good time, really, where things have just done a restructure and a rebuild. Coaching for about three years in the academy system, moving into an assistant academy manager role. Would you mind just talking to that a little bit in terms of what the day-to-day role look like? You know, because traditionally a lot of the academy managers don't really get involved in the coaching as much anymore. It's much more an operational-based yeah. uh, role. Was that the case when you first stepped in at MK, or was there a, was it a bit of both, or a bit of everything? Really, it, it was it was an under eight to under twelves role, if I remember correctly, at the time initially. Okay. So um, I coached the under twelves. And then, um, so I was their head coach, and then I basically wrote the program from eights to twelves, right? Um, and worked with the coaches doing their in-service training, um, supporting them with their sessions and that kind of thing. Um, and obviously, I was trying to build relationships as well, get to know, get to know the staff, get to know the culture. Um, I lent a lot on Paul Holder at the time. He was at the FA. Him, John Allpress, Pete Sturgis were just bringing in the youth modules. Mm-hmm. So I basically used them as a resource to help get some important messages across to the coaches in terms of the type of environment we should be set in, um, you know, the coach behaviour, um, the standards. Uh, also with the players as well, they were... Um, if I remember correctly at the time, um, not not very uh, independent, should I say, in terms of leading warm-ups and, uh, by themselves and, and also how they played. Again, this is no fault of anybody's because they hadn't... They, it, literally, the academy was a year old. So, literally, these boys had just been brought in and they were, they were kind of in their phase at that stage, the, the academy of just um, sort of making sure they stayed in existence. Uh, the academy manager was focusing on taking the under-18s. Um, so he was the under-18s head coach as well, which is, like you say, is very different to today. We didn't have at the time the fixture programme that you do now where it's in category um, one, two and three. It was... You know, MK Dons played Arsenal, Tottenham, Chelsea, um, etc. So they were in an extremely demanding um, um, fixture program. Fixture program, and, and I guess I was spinning a lot of plates. I was trying to work out who our best players were, making sure that they were happy and they didn't leave us. And because obviously clubs would have looked at an MK Dons, and I think when I went there, MK Dons were in League Two as well um because the club wasn't very old either the club was very young not just the academy um and um yeah make sure the best players stay find a way of improving our recruitment as well and then the the, the role very quickly evolved into eights to fourteens and then eights to sixteens before you knew it and as thing as these things happened so um you know and it, and it was it was very much trying to do a lot of things at the same time we didn't really have the time to 
take your time with it and I'll I'll wait till the end of the season to do this and I'll wait till next year to do that and and a much staff resource either. There was no full-time sports scientist, no full-time physio. Um, the only full-time coach was the under-18s coach who was the, also the academy manager um, because, again, back then there wasn't a huge um, demands on what the structure, staffing structure should be. Mm. So um, you were very much multitasking, shall we say. Definitely. And I think, you know, like, just on that then, you know, it would be fair to say, obviously, nowadays, you know, you'll have your foundation phase lead coaches, your youth development phase lead coaches, but obviously due to the infancy of the academy at the time, you know, you had you, you find yourself doing a whole load of that stuff. You know, as, as, as the years went on, you know, obviously you spent a good a good period of your, I guess, your academy years at, Q, um, at MK Dons and eventually coming back there later on now. In that first six years, you came, you know, you coached probably hundreds of different players, mm. uh, but one that really stood out was Delhi Ali, wasn't he? Yeah, I mean, I would say Delhi was one. I mean, Delhi's obviously had the best career, yeah, um, so far. Um, but you know, there were there were a number who Delhi wasn't actually the first, the first to break into the first team. I didn't actually work with him. Uh, was Sam Bulldog, um, so that was actually very helpful to the academy when I got there because. If you've got a player, obviously, in your first team who is doing well, um, you know, it, 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 it obviously helps with parents in particular. And um, he got sold to West Ham for, I think, £2 million in the Premier League at the time. And um, so Sam Sam was sort of the name that got used a lot and was talked about a lot. Um, then a few others broke into the first team. Adam Chickson, Tom Flanagan, who's now at Sunderland. Uh, George Baldock, who's had a fantastic season at Sheffield United. Um, and he's an incredible story because, you know, he went on loan to clubs like Naneaton and went to Iceland for a summer to play. Um, and he's now ended up getting a promotion in all, all every division. Um, and has, you know, probably surprised a lot of people, me included. Um, and and you, 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 you obviously um, applaud people like George for doing that. Um, and then Shay Ojo was probably, um, again, ahead of Delhi, I would say, at the time, because I remember Shay broke into the England squad in Delhi's age group, and Shay was a year below mm. before Delhi did. Um, Delhi was, you know, a late developer physically, um, and he was a street player, really, took a lot of risks, a lot of flair, um, but probably turned a lot of scouts off him because you, they, they, it might not be uh, to pe a lot of people's taste um, what the areas he did things in the pitch and, and that kind of thing um, and his inconsistencies. But, you know, we always believed in him and, you know, none of us have got a crystal ball. None of us would have said he would have had the career he's had, but we certainly knew that we got we had somebody who we were we were grateful to have. Mm. You know, just, just you might just talking to the, you know, to to the players at that age. Then you know, that coming through, mm. what are some of the major differences that you've observed around those that actually go on to break through and those that maybe just fall slightly short of that? Yeah, yeah. I would say, um, you know, 
there's definitely the element of um, perseverance and being able to to take the um, the highs and the lows of this industry at however old you are, you know, whether you're a 10 year old or 20 year old, you know, throughout your, their football journey, there's going to be highs and lows and, and they've got to be able to be able to deal with the highs and not get complacent. And then with the lows as well, you know, brush themselves off and, and go again. Um, so I've, I've seen boys not come through because, you know, that they've they found that difficult, regardless of the environment that they're in and the support they're getting. Uh, blame external factors instead of looking in the mirror, um, and that's one thing that I've always been big on with staff. That before we point any fingers at the players, that we look at ourselves first. Is our program right? Are we playing them in the right position? Is our style of play giving them the best opportunity to perform the formation, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. So. I think staff need to look themselves in the mirror, but so do players as well. And have they got an aware self-awareness of what their strengths and weaknesses are and what's required? And there's no shortcuts in, in this game. I've seen very few who come through the system who, you know, do it through um, doing the minimum. Minimum. I mean, I just mentioned George Bulldog there. I mean, he's probably the best trainer I've ever seen in my life. Um, so... Um, that would be a big one, I think. Um, and, you know, you've, they've got to take their opportunity when it comes, unfortunately. You know, very few of them get a number of games to prove themselves to a first-team manager <clears throat> um, and can afford to have bad games. If you think back to Delhi, Delhi um, made his debut in the FA Cup away at Cambridge City. And it was live on TV and, you know, he, he caught the eye of a lot of people. He came on, did a back heel, I remember, to put Stephen Gleeson in and things like that. And a lot of people were talking about him. And then he started the replay and he he didn't play. I remember he didn't play very well at all, but he scored a 35-yarder. And that was enough. Um, and, you know, credit to the, the first team manager at the time because he, he, he kept him on the pitch. Um, because, like I said, he didn't have his best of games, but the 35-yarder made an okay performance, a good one. So he took his chance and then now he's in credit. Now the fans want him on the pitch. The fans, um, you know, the people in the board um, want him to play. And and then obviously those things can influence the manager as well as the manager believing in him anyway. Um, whereas I've seen other boys who they, they've maybe been a bit unfortunate I remember a lad called Charlie Collins, who was a youth international, came into the system very late, <clears throat> about 16, I think he was. Uh, ended up playing for, I think it was Ireland. Um, in his, I think, one and only start for the first team, I remember he got a golden opportunity and he hit the post. Mm. And just little things like that. If that goes in, he's the hero. Maybe he scores again. Um, it doesn't go in, then he maybe comes on in another game, doesn't score, and then you start. Then they bring in another forward, then all of a sudden you're down the pecking order, and you just wonder how these things play on on their minds. Uh, the other thing that 
Um, you know, you take George Williams, who we sold to Fulham at 16. He came on for the first team as a 15-year-old in the FA Cup and scored. And again, names in the papers, gets a call up for Wales. And then before you know it, he's got all these clubs after him. He chooses to go to Fulham. You know, and he's had a very good career up until now. So, albeit he's had some terrible injuries in the last couple of years. So, taking your opportunities, definitely one. Um, and I'd say... Believe it or not, things like pre-season, impressing in pre-season when maybe some of the you know the managers still forming their squad, doing well in the fitness tests, as daft as it sounds, because you know managers will look at things like that. Is he going to be able to track his runner? Is he going to be able to play ninety-five minutes? Um, is he going to be able to physically impose himself on the game and cope, or is he going to get run over? And I remember Denny smashed all the physical physical testing records um, in one preseason. And again, you know, it just adds that no other reason why he, they should get picked. I think, you know, you touched on the, you know, a lot of it is just coming down to taking your opportunities in those moments. I think for a lot of players, they certainly from my observation, I'm probably sure, sure you've seen it a lot more than I have, but you get those ones that maybe are just sometimes not not as technically or not as you know not as technically uh, or tactically proficient but it is that little that bit of the work ethic and that mindset that they want to just go out there and just work hard and then that almost does the talking for them is there any particular moments where you've had i guess dealing with players of that ilk where you've found yourself having to maybe change your approach and maybe examples that you could give where something that you've done has kind of shifted a player's mindset from being uh, you know, somewhat lax to actually switching their minds on and maybe changing their mindset around actually starting to put in a bit more of that, that work ethic. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I mean, I remember, um, you know, I've worked with players who maybe score lots of goals but are, doing, are not doing enough, um, whether it's in, enough to improve their strengths or just add other layers to their game and um, and maybe just turn up for training as it's about to start and then leaving straight away. And you pick up on all these things, body language. And I remember in one uh, player review I did with a player, you know, they're expecting all these fancy targets and work on this and do that. And, and it just had one and it just said in capitals, um, I expect to see a dramatic improvement in your attitude up to you exclamation mark and you know and I explained it to him and his parents and um said you know put this up on your fridge look at it every day it's just that you know I can't help you with the other elements of your game until this improves mm. and here are the reasons why here are the behaviors I'm recognizing uh, what do you think uh, they agreed and um thankfully you know he took the information on board and um you know he, he's doing well for himself today um, um in one of the, in one of the professional leagues so you know there's things like that where i think as a coach you've got to smell it you've got to recognize what is actually happening here because you can give players lots of you can give them all the programs you want but is the content in it suitable for that individual and is it the right information at the right time some don't even need any targets. So, 
is it is it that you need to give them x amount of targets or is it who needs one and who doesn't sometimes they need to be left alone um if you know about their background and what's going on in their family life sometimes they're stressed out as it is with something that's going on at home or school or whatever it might be um and they just need to hear from you listen whatever happens you're playing for the next six games or listen relax you're going to be here next year you know i've given i've given you know new registrations or contracts that we're going to call them out just sort of off you know without a planned meeting just sort of done it a third of this into the season just because i, I knew that that was for that individual they needed to hear that and that was going to relax them yeah. um so yeah i think you um i think we shouldn't underestimate the importance of technique um you know when when you, when i ask people at arsenal now about the boys who have come through there um you know one of the common things that comes back is all of them had good technique um you, we can talk about athleticism and all the rest of it but they could all deal with the ball um and you know none of the boys that i've mentioned to you just now couldn't deal with the ball yes they were at different levels um but you know obviously the game is about a number of things but ultimately you've got to be able to receive the ball and pass it mm, definitely and i think you know what you talk about there in terms of those bits of just helping a player's psyche in terms of, you know that player might have just needed to be settled down knowing that he's i guess future in somewhat was secure in that respect. And I think it's just picking up on those things and you know to so talk there about knowing the player's family and some of the things that might be going on in their personal lives. Mm. I think you know I think a lot of coaches certainly from my observations, you know, they maybe miss a trick when 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 those things do come up and then it it's very easy to almost cast aside some of those players who might come across as you know quote unquote problem players or players who don't be yeah. interested but actually there's a lot there's a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes as well yeah um i think that's a very good point just to kind of take you back to your journey you know you know you talk about perseverance and you know taking opportunities you've you've certainly done that in your journey so far and obviously to seeking that opportunity out at uh, palace and then moving up to spurs and now at mk you, you spent six years at mk um from 2007 up until 2013, if I'm That's right, right. yeah. Um, and now, then you've made a move over to the FA. Yeah. How did that come across? And, you know, what was that like? Yeah, so it probably took up, up to Shay. I remember Shay coming on for England on his debut. Um, and literally the first touch he got on the ball, he went on a run, beat a few players, crossed it, and uh, I think it was Mason Bennett or... Um, or Jerome Sinclair, one of those two scored the goal, and um, and then that was it. Shea was Shea was on the back pages that weekend. Um, this club, you know, these three clubs have bid all bid two million pounds for him. I remember we were on the bus going to Aston Villa for an under sixteen game, and um, it was it 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 kind of hit me that day that this academy starting to get a reputation. It's starting to get eyes on it, um, and that was probably about three years in to my time there um two or three years and um I, I kind of felt like it was at a point there where i could i would i could literally walk away from a game and they knew exactly how to play um all the habits were embedded um there were good people as well um 
and we, we did have a culture uh, forming uh, whereby the players were good problem solvers. They were very creative. Um, they were games players and the, the staff had bought into it as well. So we go to Villa and there's a lot of scouts there. Um, he's getting kicked all over the place. And um, and basically, it, it sort of came from that, really, that we were sort of now in the spotlight. And then before you knew it, we got, oh, I can't remember how many it was now that season. We must have got five or six stadium invitations to play against, for example, Tottenham at White Hart Lane, um, at under 16s and things like that. And, and the academy manager was getting a bit dubious about it and asking me, why are we getting all these invitations? And I said, I don't know. I'll ask the clubs. Um, you know, obviously the cynic in the staff was, oh, they're doing it to look at our players. And my 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 comeback would be, if they are, brilliant, because it means we want people to say we've got good players um, and we need to be confident in ourselves that we've created such an environment that they would like to stay. Mm. And if they don't decide to stay, then, and, and a move is better for them, then we shake their hands and wish them well. Um, and, and a lot of it that came back was, you know, you give us different challenges to what we're used to. You play different shapes, uh, the way your players manipulate the ball and, and all these kinds of things. So all of a sudden we'll get a reputation for um, big clubs wanting to play us. Um, once Shea got his call up, then it just it then it, it just evolved into Brendan Galloway, Delhi, Hugo Logan, Giorgio Rasulo. Danny Collins, um, you, before you knew it, you'd look at an England squad, at under 16, 17 squad, and it'd have all these big clubs, and then at the bot, and then it would have MK Dons. Um, so I guess I've got the players to thank, really, because you know at the end of the day, if the players don't perform and take on board ideas and buy into the ideas, because I was sticking them on small pitches, um, and you know getting a lot of criticism um, at times from from uh, different different clubs etc about you know pitches too tight and they can't play on this and and the caddy manager was extremely supportive with this philosophy and it, it basically accelerated our players into really good like I said problem solvers and um, um, flexible tactically flexible players as well so um we just felt that uh, that they, they they became they improved dramatically um and then with that obviously you know you you, you sort of um pick people start to become a bit more aware the fa started inviting me to give talks on different courses um, i remember martin samuel from the daily mail came and did a big piece on us um so we just were in the spotlight basically um Pete Lynn came and did a big piece on us for the FA Boot Room magazine. Um, and then, you know, I've got a few phone calls um, from different people saying, you know, the FA, I think you should go. They've got interviews coming. I think, you, you know, been, been told that there's an interest. So, you know, I went and did the two interviews uh, there. And, um, and then I remember I was away with the MK Don's first team in pre-season. And I remember literally half the squad might have been from the academy and um, I was kind of, I got the phone call from Dan Ashworth saying, you know, we'd like to offer you a position. 
And I remember thinking, this is quite a big moment here for me because um, we, MK was saying they, they saw me transitioning into a first team coach within, within um, 12 months. And Paul Mitchell at the time, who was there, who was a massive support to me, he's now the sporting director at Monaco um, and regarded as one of the best in the business at what he does. Um, you know, he, he was extremely supportive, Carl Robinson as well, of me sort of making the step up and the chairman. But, you know, th there was no guarantee. There was, that, that was never sort of in writing. And the FA was always one of my ambitions. You know, the more that our players played for England, the more I was travelling across Europe to go and watch them. And I was thinking I would really like to see, you know, I've, I've, I've gone to a smaller club and hopefully shown that, <clears throat> shown people that you don't need lots of resources to develop very good players. Mm. And basically you just need a vision, a vision and uh, belief in what you do and belief in the players. Um, can I, can I transfer that into an international setting and show that England, because at the time England were getting slaughtered um, in the press. Trevor Brookin must've been in the paper every day saying how we need better technical players, we need creative players. Uh, and he was right um, to a point. You know, he was saying they needed more opportunity. The players are here. Um, I just felt at the time that our players weren't getting the opportunity to showcase their talent uh, through style of play or uh, maybe um, did we really believe in players expressing themselves? Did we really believe that we could be better than Spain, Brazil, Germany, France? Or did we see ourselves as, you know, against those countries, we need to sit in and just hit them on the break? Um, so it was the timing, really. You know, at the time, you know, if you look back on newspaper cuttings now, if you go back to that time, England was getting a really, really um, heavily criticised English players. So, I felt that I could hope I could make a difference. So I accepted it. And I think you know, going from that transit, you talk uh, transition from club to obviously the national setup. Now I just want to take you, you know, before we move on into deeper detail around that, I want to take you back to something you said right at the start of that. You talked there about you'd like to think that your players can get into a position where, if you're not there, they can still make the right decisions. Mm. Um, you know, and it's something that kind of really resonates with me. Can I always say to my players, you know, my job is to make myself redundant from whatever I'm doing with you guys here. Because mm. at the end of the day, if I don't, if you don't need me, then that means I've done myself right. Um, now, how difficult can that be at times? Because obviously, you know, going through, you know, certainly, you know, when maybe myself coming up as a as a player, maybe when you know when you played at a younger age. It was very much not. A, it was all about the coach, and I think that was a quite a, a traditional way of coaching. Mm. It was about the coach. It wasn't really player centred. Um, but obviously, as time has gone on, and certainly in today's climate, that's you know we're very much shifting towards this culture of making it much more player centred, and in some cases, um, even player led. Mm. How difficult or, or challenging did you find? I guess getting the players to buy into that aspect of things, mm. where it was it was about no, we want you as the players to make more decisions. Yeah, I mean, I guess where it came from was ultimately football is a player sport, not a coach's sport, and 
if they're going to play at whatever level it is, there's not a lot the coach or manager can do on a match day. Obviously, they can have some influence. Um, otherwise, I think our managers would go and sit in the stand like they do in rugby. Um, but they obviously feel like they can, uh, and, you know, now that I've been a first team manager, I do think you can impact the game during the game um, to a certain degree. But, you know, particularly at the top, top level, you know, the, the players would, can't even hear the manager. So they are going to have to be make decisions and uh, play in the moment. So, um, you know, all the research that told me that players, and again, going back to the criticism that English players would get in, I remember people at the FA telling me, um, you know, our English players are as good as Portuguese and Spanish. Technically, if you put them all in a passing drill, the English player will be as good as the Spanish and the Portuguese etc but as soon as you put opposition in there that that that's where it falls down mm. um and i want we wanted to develop players who played off their instincts as well um who could um make you know improvise in the moment improvise in in quick uh moments where maybe the, the when the ball comes into them they haven't got time to open up on their back foot and it's all nice you know, literally it's coming in and they've, they've got to do something in the instant. And if I look back on the players that influenced me growing up, you know, I, I brought up in an Italian family and, you know, in the in the 80s, I, I was watching Serie A. Um, I was watching, you know, and, and Serie A at the time was the, regarded as the best league. Um, and, you know, I've always had Italian satellite at home, so I've watched all their analysis over the years, etc., so Zidane's and the Maradonas and Baggio's and Zico and Redondo and all these types of players, I'm watching them thinking, how come they can do these things? And when you see English players, they can do it to a certain point and we, we don't really have those players. And why not? Um, and the fact of the matter is we do have them. Um you know, and our, our Iniesta is probably a taxi driver somewhere in Sullyhull. Um, you know, I, I, that that's that's the truth. It, it, I don't think that would happen today, but because I think we've come on a lot. But back in the day, we had uh, very much a long ball culture. Um, whereas now in academy football, I see a lot of um, far more sophisticated coaching going on, whether it be systems of play, and you could you could say that's down to. Guardiola being here and Klopp and I think Conte had a big um, influence when he was here winning the league with back three um, Gareth as well what he did at the World Cup and, and how he's changing systems and, and obviously Gareth's encouraging a, a more fluid way of playing um, so you know it, it was a case of um, if we want our, to develop players like this what are these players saying that got them there? And a lot of them talked about street football. Very few actually talked about the coach. They talked about playing um, with and against older people. Um, they talked about variety, whether it be formats, surfaces, um, competition. So basically come to the conclusion that these players need competition, really, more so than they need coaching. 
Um, and the co- a lot of the coaching was hidden coaching, um, I would say, um, where it where it'd be sort of the, the, the little conversations down the corridor or the fact that we were redundant, some parents would see that as not coaching. Mm. We would see it as, say, skillful neglect. You yeah. are coaching them, but you are doing it in a different way. Um, you are, and 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 obviously these things have to be done step by step. You know, you can't go in somewhere like I said before. When I first went in, the players were very dependent on the staff, so you can't go in there on day one and expect them to pop it and play out from the back and take their own warm ups and um, put the kit out and do all the things that you want that want to get them to. Um, you need to do it gradually and praise certain things um certain individuals praise hard work as a as well as talent and um reinforce you know good habits um constantly so um and also the making yourself redundant i think it's not always again i think coaching is doing the right things at the right place at the right time so there'd be other games where i would be in the players' faces, and I'd be there with them because um, yeah. I felt they needed me. Um, other times, I might turn up to the game 10 minutes into the game on purpose. So I wouldn't even be there for the first 10 minutes. And as long as there's a physio there, so they've got that medical support, Yeah, I would, I, you know, I would just wander out there when I was ready and then just say, how how's it going? And Nine times out of ten, it'd be yeah, started really well, been camped in their half, and, yeah. the, and the boy, the players would be none the white. They wouldn't even re- know if I was there or not. Um, and what it does is it gives them a belief that you trust them, um, that you're about them first, and obviously the fear is, gosh, are we going to get beat four or five nil? Well, I'd argue. If, if you need to be there on the touchline constantly in order to not lose all four or five nil, something's wrong somewhere, whether it's your coaching or your recruitment. Um, and, if and you know, you, you are going to lose a four or five nil at some point and that there's no harm in that because the players need to know what that feels like as well. Yeah. Um, and then you can see if they can bounce back. Um, but I, I'd say at the time I was in a unique position because my caddy manager gave me a lot of freedom and trusted me implicitly. So whereas other coaches I speak to, spoke to back then and who asked me now, and we speak now, they would say they could never have done that in, you know, in the academies they worked in. It it was, you know, they were under a lot of pressure, whether it be results or to be there or be, be vocal on the side. And for me, there's nothing wrong with being vocal. It's what you're saying. Is it good information? Is it the right information? Is it encouragement or are you just blasting them constantly? Um, so, you know, there's a, there's a lot of factors really to take into account. Definitely. And if I want to take you back, obviously, you know, you, you've had these experiences. One of the things you touched on was when moving to MK, you had a, a you know, congruent mindset around the way you wanted to play and the way you felt coaching should be done with the academy manager there at the time. Would you mind just going into a bit of detail on what that is? You know, what would you say the fundamentals of your own coaching philosophy in that respect? At MK? Uh, just, just generally as a coach. Generally? Yeah. 
Um, well, I think, you know, coaching wise, um, I would sort of summarize my sort of training philosophy in terms of, I would categorize it into sort of training sessions being game specific, style specific, player specific. So does it meet the needs of the players? So I remember Alex Inglethorpe saying it to me ages ago, really simply, you know, when he plans a session, he asks himself, who have I got and what do they need? Um, that's his starting point, as opposed to this week we're working on dribbling or we're working on passing. No, who have I got and what do they need? And then I'll build the session around that. Yeah. Um, I think that's one element of it. But then the other element is that you're always training your style of play, no matter what. Um, because um, then you're not having to generally. Um, well, then, then you know the the players players um, will then naturally get certain outcomes out of the game, out of training and and games because the style of play encourages it. So, for example, if we think of Iniesta and how he would receive the ball off a centre-back with his back to goal marked tightly. And in that 1v1 situation, he is twisting out, out, out of that situation and then driving forward with the ball. Um, if that's part of your style of play, then, then that's very different to if your style of play is, right, when it comes in, you set it. And then some so-and-so is going to hit the channel and then we're going to try and pick up the seconds. There's nothing wrong with that, by the way. Yeah. Uh, they're two very different outcomes. So um, so if you know that, right, I want to develop 1v1 players, um, what does that look like for this player? Well, I want him doing this. Now, then you're not, you're not too fussed if he receives the ball marked or not either. Mm. Um, so you, you end up, your information and your, the language you use and the communication you use is very different. Uh, and that's what the playing style um, drives. It drives your behaviour as a coach. You get excited about certain play and certain patterns and uh, you demand certain things. Um, um, and then the last one is the game. Um, and, as, and, and as odd as it sounds, you know, working from the game first and then going backwards. So what is a game of football? It's two goals, directional, with a halfway line, up, um, with opposition, um, matched up. So, and and when, when you start to move away from that, knowing why you're moving away from that, and, ha and if you are moving away from it, and again, I haven't got any problems with passing drills, um, I do passing drills, but I do them in relation to how I'm going to play and specific movements that um, I want. And they'll generally be in a warm up. Um, and, I, and I think it's, you know, they're very valuable for painting pictures, um, particularly if you've used video before the training session as well or on HUD or whatever you use. So um, I'm not one of those who is against doing certain exercises i know what exercise i do and i know why i do them um and I'm, I'm quite sort of clear in my mind right i do possessions i've got four types of possessions that i do 
So when I say to myself, I'm doing a possession, I, I then go, right, which type of possession is it? Same with finishing exercises, same with passing exercises, etc. But those three that I just mentioned there, the specificity is um, basically my underlying sort of checklist. And then off that is pitch geography and competition and match tempo and 80% ball rolling and all those things. Um, and um, and then in terms of how how I like to play, um, I, I, I generally break my style of play down into three A's just to keep it really simple, attacking, aggressive, adaptable. Um, you know, I want my teams uh, to attack because I think it's an entertainment sport first and foremost for the players as well as for the people watching. So I want my players to enjoy playing the game. Mm. Um, I want them to, to find it interesting, be intrigued by the information I'm giving and the observations I'm making and where I take them to, um, where they think, no, the only thing I could have done in this situation was this. And, and I say, well, what about that? And then I and then I can back it up with evidence. So I can show them an example of other players doing it, and then that opens up the possibilities. And 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 if you've got a vision that supports that, where the players are, have set themselves a vision to inspire, say, the next generation of players in the club, mm-hmm. then you you use that to your advantage by saying, look, by you doing this, you're going to inspire those under nines and tens. They're going to look up to you as well as it's going to do you the world of good because you'll, you'll get international recognition and um, you'll, you'll progress a lot quicker in your career. Mm. So, um, so, you know, I, I want, I want to be attacking and I know how, how, how to do that, I think. Um, and then um, aggressive because in order to attack, we need to have the ball. Um, and I think a mistake I've made in the past is my teams have probably been too one-dimensional and that's been my fault i've i've emphasized the creative element too much um and um and ultimately football is as we know a game of four moments with and without the ball winning transition with and against and and set pieces well you could argue it's six moments um, and if you just focus on one moment out of the six, you know, don't be surprised if that's all your players are good at. So I've definitely um, got that balance wrong in the past. Uh, but now I think, you know, I think um, particularly in the modern game as well, the top teams are so good without the ball, all 11 of them, um, you know, or, or at least 10. I mean, you look at Messi at Barcelona and, you know, he does do very little without the ball. There's no doubt about it. And But, you know, that's that's fine because of what he brings to the game from an attacking element and it's accepted and the coach puts in a structure around him which allows that to happen. Mm. Um, and then adaptable, because I think you do need to adapt, be adaptable to different styles, different types of opposition, um, yourself as well, being able to change to a back three or a back four, a diamond, whatever it might be. So I like I like players to be adaptable. And I think if, if I'm asking them to be adaptable, I need to be adaptable as a coach. 
Definitely. So I work extremely hard to make sure I'm up to date with the trends of the game. And um, I've got um, a, a huge number of examples I can draw upon that help players um, with examples of what I'd like them to do, as well as once you develop the playing style, the examples are of the players themselves, as opposed to of professional other teams. Yeah, definitely. I think just touching on it, I think that that work ethic from the coach himself is is key. You know, I always say to coaches, you know, in order for you to kind of make sure your players are, are always get the best opportunities to develop, you need to continuously try to develop yourself too, because you might be missing a trick if you're not. Um, just want to take you back to now your time at the FA. So you've you know you've 2013 gone over is that is that right yeah yeah 2013 you've gone over to the FA you've you know you've been you've, you've stepped into that role now under 16s uh, head coach massive difference obviously in terms of working at a club uh, an academy in particular and obviously in a cat three within that what would you say are the major differences when now working in a national setup as opposed to a I guess a domestic setup. Um, well, again, going back to that last point we're talking about, about being adaptable, what I probably should say in that as well is, for us coaches, is us being adaptable to the different environments we work in, mm. uh, because the expectations will be different, the, um, the, the way of working will be slightly different as well, um, and we've got to, you know, we've got to accept, I think, that where the different places we go to work, I can't, I couldn't do at the FA what I did at MK Dons. Yeah. Um, and likewise, I can't do at Arsenal what I did at the FA. Um, there, there's certain things that I could, uh, uh, that are transferable, of course they are, but then you've got to mould it into that culture and that, that, that environment. And um, I, I guess... When I went in there, I mean, I was dual rolling, so I was 12 to 16's technical lead. Yeah. I worked very closely. I was very lucky to work very closely with Pete Sturgis, um, who I regard as, you know, being one of the best around the foundation phase, but just in general, and, and he's a fantastic person as well. Um, but in terms of, so I was doing that, and I was assisting Kenny Swain with the England under-16s. Um, so that my first group I worked with was in 98 um, uh, that was Trent Alexander Arnold's group and Tom Davis people like that um, and um, and then that same year that was the first Dan Nashworth introduced the, the, the under 15s for the first time so at the time again going back to where we were as a nation there was no under 15s, 18s or 20s. And Dan quickly brought them in. I and mean, it's incredible to think there was three age groups missing. I'm sure the staff prior to Dan going in maybe wanted to do that. And maybe they didn't, they didn't weren't allowed to. Or, um, I mean, St George's Park wasn't in place. So maybe it was very difficult with facilities. Um, so St George's was only a year old. So it was a bit similar to really MK in that. I was going into something which was quite new and fresh. Dan had been in post long and he, he allowed me to run the under 15 program from scratch and um, kind of set how we were going to work 
um, how he he saw us working right the way through, but starting it from obviously the youngest group. So, you know, we we pretty much practice what we preached really in terms of what we were saying on the advanced youth award about um the environment and um um how we would manage these boys um how we think they need to be managed whether it be to do with sleep patterns or punctuality those kinds of things um and um and yeah, the, the the difference, the big difference was the expectations, really. You know, it, it was literally, you know, the aim is we're, we're gearing towards winning a World Cup. Um, so from a planning element, um, although I'd written programmes and things like that, MK Dons, um, probably because, one, my personality, but two, um because I was doing so many things at MK, I was I was it was I wasn't skilled enough really to plan in advance when I worked there. I was literally doing what doing something and then moving on to the next thing that I needed to do, as opposed to uh, working smartly. Uh, so I'd say the biggest um, shift I had to make at the FA was one in terms of planning. Um, because the planning side of it was at the FA is probably as good as you'll see anywhere. Um, and, um, and secondly, you know, leading and managing staff, because I hadn't really had to do that MK Dons because we didn't have many members of staff. Whereas all of a sudden now you have got a psychologist, you've got a sports scientist, you've got, a, um, team operations, um, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Um, and, you know, it's working there isn't as easy as it looks. Um, yes, you're working with good players, don't get me wrong, but other countries have got good players as well. Um, and you've got to be very skilled at, um, you know, building a relationship with these boys in a short space of time, um, getting the work done in a very short space of time and game, rest, game, rest, game although you have a lot of planning time when you're on camp, it's um, very demanding. There's a, you know, there's not, there's a very quick turnaround between games. And also, you know, there's a big expectation from clubs about you. So when you deliver on courses or, you know, you get requests to come onto your camp so they can watch you work and you allow five, six, seven clubs to come on camp to see the environment, and explain to them what you're doing and why you're doing it, you know, they're looking up to you and some of these people are extremely experienced and, you know, in the day you're coaching their players. So they, they, they want to be sure that you can be trusted with their players and they can have a positive experience and you're going to be giving them the right messages. So, um, you know, it, 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 you, it couldn't have been more different you couldn't have got a more different environment than MK Dons and working at St George's Park. Yeah. Um, both really good for my development, but in very different ways. Definitely. You know, and obviously, you know, you started off as, you know, technical leader and eventually sort of you took over as a 16s head coach. Mm. Now, within that time, you know, I just want to touch on something else that, you know, to bring you back, something else you touched on earlier around, uh, 
that developing yourself and you know, doing your doing your your due diligence and your research and trying to upskill and keep yourself updated with what's going on. Now, there's been a lot of changes in the FA over recent years, and more specifically with the coach education pathway. Um, a lot of coaches I've spoken to, you know, I guess divided by it in the way that it seems to be better in terms of developing different types of coaches. Mm. Um, it seems to be better in terms of allowing coaches to become creative and expressive around what they, how they want to coach and where in, the, you know, in regards to, I guess, more the groups of players they're working with. There's mm. been a lot of, uh, you know, challenges in terms of how much uh, the emphasis of the technical and tactical aspect of the, of the coach education courses have kind of shifted a little bit. What are your thoughts on that? Um, in terms of how the courses have shifted? Yes, I mean, there's, there's a, lot, you know, a lot of coaches, traditionally you would have gone onto the courses, you know, um, and a lot of this, a lot of the support that you'll be getting is around the technical tactical side. Obviously, as years have come have gone by, yeah. there's been a lot more focus around maybe blending the four corners, yeah. in particular around the other four corners. Yeah, um, I think we've got to be careful that we don't go too much the other way. Yeah, um, and it was something that I, you know, I did bring up when I was working there, and I was heavily involved in course content because, um, at the end of the day, for example, the social corner is, of course, it's very important. 100% and you got to understand it and um, build relationships etc and be able to manage behavior behavioral issues and uh, be able to ha handle the attention seekers and Merv Roberts who, what, who leads that course is again fantastic at what he does um, the, the thing that I would say we need to make sure we marry up with it is like Chris Ramsey would always say to me at the end of the day, if they can't control it and pass it, they're not getting a job in the game. Yeah. That's the reality of it. Um, you know, it's a bit like the birth bias. Yes. We've got to understand relative age effect and understand um, maturation and growth, etc. But there comes a point in youth development when, people don't really care anymore about that, that you're a, um, a June born or that, you know, you're not very tall, you know, because you're starting to get towards the business end. Yeah. So, yeah, ultimately, what you know, I think the blending is um, very important, um, but it's, for me, I think the bit that we maybe didn't <clears throat> um, shine a light on enough um at certain points was what i mentioned before the playing style element so we can talk about practice design and putting constraints on etc but what is the playing style within that practice because you look at you know barcelona for example and spain over the years you know the playing style drives everything and um, it's not just a rondo. It's a rondo linked to a specific playing style that allows you to have 70% possession and it allows small players to be able to survive and thrive. So, you know, two people could put on the same possession exercise, but what is the playing style within that possession exercise? Um, that, that is, that's where I think... Um, we could, um, you know, really emphasize more, and I believe we are doing now. Um, but 
I, I, I think the way courses were done in the past, and, and I and I had some difficulties on the courses in the past. Maybe again it was my um inexperience. Um and um again I was on a bit of a crusade, if you like, to prove we had creative players and why didn't Glenn Oddle play more games for England than he did? Why didn't we build a team around people like him? And and I was really driven towards that. And, um, you know, definitely when I first went into the FA, that was all I cared about. Um, and when we played at Brazil, I didn't want 50% possession or 55. I wanted 65 and we went and did it, thankfully. Mm. Um, and, you know, that's the players. That's not me. Uh, all I tried to do was give them the belief that they were as good as anyone. Um, but, you know, with with w- when I went on FA course in the past, um, I was I look back now and I think there was an awful lot of good teaching that went on. And 11v11 coaching is really hard. Um, I think it takes a lot of skills that those guys at the time, John Peacocks of this world, um, you know, I probably underestimate how skillful they were, Steve Rutter, um, to, to coach um, that way. Mm-hmm. And I think we just got to be careful that we don't now go towards the complete opposite end of the spectrum. Um, and that's probably where, at times, coaches maybe have got a bit confused, is one minute the FA is saying, stop, stand still, let me take your place. Yeah. And then the next minute they're saying, throw the ball in the air and hope for the best. And actually it's neither. And the one that I think probably does get the balance right is Pete Sturgis, because he talks about purposeful play. And I've seen him work with nine and 10 year olds and the the environment is extremely demanding. Uh, there's specific rules in place and specific outcomes that he gets out but everything that he does is carefully planned and and within tight, tight boundaries. And that's because he understands the psychosocial corner so well. Um, and that's where you do need to understand the four corners in terms of how to speak to people and um, how to manage the environment. Um, where, where I do think where we're going with it now um, is um, in a good place is allowing coaches to be themselves and have their own personalities. You know, we, I, I, I you, you can only, it's very difficult to be somebody else and to talk like somebody else and to step in when somebody else is going to step in. And, you know, coaching is about observation, really. It's about recognising what's going on and then making a decision. Am I going to intervene or am I going to leave it? Um, Steve Holland had some good methods when I used to watch him work when he used to do the under 21s with Gareth where um, they they used video very well so they would they wouldn't step into training sessions re- really when the players were playing that was it <clears throat> he may coach from the side <clears throat> and encourage certain things but he would generally make his coaching point in the drinks break and then <clears throat> use the video afterwards to show the clip of such and such mm. um and and again that's understanding the physical corner because he knows on that specific day he needs them to get their legs going 
So he doesn't want to be stopping it because he wants to hit certain physical um, targets as well. So, you know, it's it, it, there's a lot of things to consider when, when you're doing, obviously, your coaching um, and obviously using analysis before training <clears throat> to paint pictures can save your voice as well. Um, so I think it's about people finding their way. The FA have never told anybody this is how you do it. I think they they want to ask. They, they just want you to be able to justify why you do what you do. Yeah. Um, and I think the biggest thing that the FA can do, which thankfully, you know, they've done in the last few years is um, show that they believe in a certain style of football. And, um, you know, we had that summer of success a few years ago, which, you know, hopefully we can repeat sooner rather than later. Definitely. And just kind of speaking on that, you know, in terms of that justification rationale, why you do what you do, I just want to take you forward now to your time at Arsenal. Having left the FA, you know, uh, well, before you even got to Arsenal, you had a brief stint as MK Don's first team manager. Mm. What was that like? What happened? What happened? What happened there? What did, you, what did you really take away from that experience, and how did you then end up at Arsenal? Yeah, I mean, I mean, look, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm really grateful for to the chairman for giving me the opportunity. Um, I think you learn a lot about yourself. Um, I learn, I, I understand other people who I've who have been managers now a lot more. And I think I understand the demands of what first team environment looks like and a match day looks like now that I work back with young players. Um, and, you know, I, I knew it at the time and all the reflection I've done since then, our, our work was good. Um, you know, we we had to change a lot when we went in. Um, we, we, we had a good methodology. Um, the players liked training. Um, you know, we I changed the system quite early on to a three diamond three, and we outperformed some really good sides like your Portsmouths and your Doncasters and your Blackburns of this world. And you know, we on another day we probably would have won eighty percent of the games that I was there. Um, if if you really analyse the games like I have done and, and watched them back and and looked at the stats in the expected goals, etc. The fact that we didn't take those chances, um, I only blame one person. I blame myself. Um, I, I very rarely blame players. Um, it's not my way. Um, I probably should have done more double sessions with them. Um, you know, I probably should have, even if it was a second session for 40 minutes with some patterns and technical work or, or the, just the finishing, the, the finishing element to our moves because we we open teams up a lot, um, and again the evidence is there. Um, the pressure is definitely there. Um, you know, it is a very pressurised job. I heard Scott Parker talking last night about it and how you win on a Saturday and you're trying to enjoy a Chinese that night and then your mind shifts to the Monday. And you know, I, I can empathise with that. That is what it is. No matter, regardless of what your planning is and etc. You know, you you are you because you are then expected to win the next one. Um, and I remember when I got nominated for manager of the month, 
we'd just won away at Gillingham and the club had never won at Gillingham. And I, I got reminded of that numerous times that week. Um, but we're on a really good run. Um, and, you know, we'd been away at your Fleetwoods and your Rochdales of this world on, on a midweek games. And, you know, they're tough games. And, you know, we went on an excellent run, got nominated for manager of the month. And really, I should be getting in from Gillingham whenever it was at one in the morning thinking fantastic and you can breathe for 24 hours but we had Blackburn in 48 hours time and they got Adam Armstrong up front and Dak in behind and Danny Graham and then four days later you got Wigan away and they got Will Grigg up front who went who you know got sold there for three million or something and Nick Powell who they turned down 10 million from Brighton and Nathan Byrne who I work with at Tottenham and they got you know they're full of good players and and then after that, you got another tough game. And, you know, so um, it's not it's not an easy job. It's a very satisfying job if you get it right and you get the time. And, you know, I'm very grateful that I got the opportunity. Um, I'm, you know, obviously disappointed that I wasn't allowed to um, fulfil what we'd agreed in terms of, you know, it was a long-term plan. It wasn't going to happen overnight. The club had only won 31 games out of 133 before I got there. So it was on a downward trajectory. And I'm not a firefighting coach. Mm. You know, I am a someone who I think is, I've proved that I can go in somewhere and build um, if I'm trusted to do that. Um, whether it's youth development or senior players. At the end of the day, senior players are no different to youth team players in terms of they're just human beings at the end of the day. They want to be treated respectfully. They want to enjoy their work. They want to um, know that you believe in them in terms of how you want to play. And, um, you know, they, you know, I work with a lot of experienced players who had worked with Premier League managers and a lot of them said, you know, the approach was as modern as they'd experienced and, um, etc. And I still speak some regularly now. So, you know, you're you're centimeters. You're a set. You know, you're a, a meter away or half a meter away from things being very different. Um, but it didn't it didn't transpire like that. Every, I believe everything happens for a reason. Um, and you know, when when one door closes, another one opens, and that's what happens with Arsenal. And I'm now at and have a really good club. It's just, you know, taking you, taking you to that now, you see your role at Arsenal, lead under 15-16s. What does the day-to-day look like on that in terms of obviously working with players, overseeing other staff and maybe supporting them with their development as well? Um, yeah, so basically... Um, You know, my, my role is sort of twofold, really. Obviously, you've got the phase lead element um, and then you've got the actual head coach of the under-16. So from a under-16 perspective, uh, we train on a Monday Monday evening, day release on a Tuesday and Thursday, um, game on a Saturday. Um, so the way we tend to work is we have... We, we have um, we've got a good periodization model but it's football periodization as opposed to physical periodization 
So in our periodization uh, model, we take into account everything, starting with football. So um, what is it? We're working from a playing style element and, and, and how does that look throughout the year? Um, and then, you know, when are, you, when are you planning meetings and um, what are your physical returns from different training sessions and um, what analysis are you doing? When are you doing it? And, you know, we I'm very fortunate at this club. I must admit that from a staffing perspective, um, it's kind of, I, I, I do like and working at Arsenal to work with England, but just I'm doing it day to day. Yep. with England where you know you had that multidisciplinary co- collaborative approach and the expectations were to win you know the slogan was winning England that was the vision um but also have a have a good playing style possession based playing style um and regardless of who you're playing against and also develop individuals the same as at Arsenal um you are expected to do all three of those it's not written anywhere but you just know it you can feel it um and you know that's that's just um the way it should be so um so from that point of view you know monday monday morning we'll have a staff meeting um go over the weekend before um make sure everything we, we we have a staff we have like our staff methodology and our staff principles and one of them is um to plan at least four weeks in advance so it won't be on a monday that i'm saying oh can i have such and such for tonight um you know we don't work like that the the analysts will already know uh what everything would have been teed up well before um of course you'll review the game back from the saturday before um, and we have a playing style library, um, which will um, add best practice clips to it um, and then put that on huddle for the players, um, as well as then they, they take ownership of their individual playlist. Mm. And then when we do player reviews with them, they um, they present to us based on, you know, their, their, their individual targets. Um, they evidence, if you like, why they've got a specific target and um, the progress they're making in that. Um, so it's twofold, really. Um, but Monday, we, w- we won't do any team meetings um, unless, you know, if we've got, like last year, you know, we got to last season, we got to the Premier League National Cup final. So um, we'll use competitions like that as an opportunity to um educate the players on more analysis work uh, maybe a bit more on the opposition a bit more on how we're, we're going to play us against a certain shape but generally Mondays is on arrival they go straight out and they do football coordination we call it um, other people would call it ball mastery um same thing really so they'll do that on arrival so if you arrive at half five you get half an hour of it before training with um, a specialist coach in that in that field. If you arrive 10 minutes before, you get 10 minutes of it, but then you'll get that as a top-up at the end of the session. Um, we think that bit's really important, but we see it more as a pre-training um, activity than during training. During training, we get into opposed work, um, 
normally from the start, but definitely after the warm up, which is an integrated warm up. Mm -hmm. uh, we we call it football activation. Really, it's activating the theme or the playing style, yeah, or something that, or it might be position specific. So it's integrated into the warm up, and then we we get into the session. Um, and then, like I said, Tuesdays we do day release. Um, normally, we do our afternoon session inside the dome with the music on, and it will be it's our football conditioning session really so um you know there'll be minimal coaching the music's on they can't hear me anyway and it'll be conditioned games um where we know we're going to get a certain amount of high speed running and um sprint distance but it's all disguised it's all within playing small sided games um and if there's any coaching points i need to make going back to what i said about steve holland i'll be doing it later in the week on video um then we train then they'll do um you know a gym session and have food and um do an analysis workshop and then they train again in the evening then they repeat that on a thursday um the afternoon session won't, won't be as hard as what it was on the tuesday physically and then the games on a saturday um and then from a phase point of view we just uh meet bi-weekly as as all staff and build a method make sure we, we we keep adding to our phase methodology um last year each staff member had their own next level project we called it so <clears throat> what needed to be done in terms of our methodology and what people were either interested in or saw as their strength mm. and then they present a few weeks later and then bit by bit we built our staff methodology um around culture around um analysis um you know uh, training methodology playing style um so you know there's a legacy there if any yeah. of us um left tomorrow you know somebody could come in and say okay how is it with they you work at arsenal in this phase it's their bang and it's all aligned to per mertesacker's vision of um wanting strong young gunners and um, to develop one of the best, um, one of the most challenging and caring football academies in the world. Brilliant. You talk there a lot about, you know, the, I guess, the multidisciplinary teams and having those influences on the players and allowing players to experience all those different things. I want to kind of bring it back to yourself now a little bit. I'm just curious as to know whether, you know, you touched on uh, someone right at the start of the journey there. Who, if anyone, would you say has been a major influence from you? And what would you say is the biggest lesson you've learned from them? Um, away from football um, is is a cousin, um, is my cousin who, when I was growing up, um, he came home from school one day and um, said to his, said to his mum he wasn't feeling very well. Anyway, he went to the doctors, got... Um, admitted to hospital, ended up with an illness which um, led to him being paralysed from the neck down. Um, but what he did was um, not only did he live his life um, as well as he could, um, and, you know, we talked earlier about life is about, and football is about perseverance and dealing with the highs and lows. I mean, he certainly dealt with an incredible low, but he actually became a painter with his mouth. 
and opened his own art gallery. And I didn't really, I don't think I realised it at the time, but as I got older and matured, I realised the influence he had on me in terms of if you can paint with your mouth and, you know, his paintings were incredible and, and it wasn't like something he was doing from a young age. We're talking from his late teens. He was having to sort of relearn a skill. Mm. Um, anything's possible on a football pitch. So I, I always have that in my mind in terms of if you can do that, um, no one can tell me that English players can't play like as well as the Spanish or the Germans or the French. No one can tell me that this Arsenal group can't be the best in the world. Yeah. Uh, no one can tell me that when I was at MK Dons, that although we didn't have a penny compared to most other clubs, we couldn't do what we did. So I have that sort of mentality um, and that's because of him. Um Within the industry, um, when I was talking earlier about being redundant, the first time I actually experienced that was at Crystal Palace. So this guy, Dave Enjai, um, we'd, have, we'd have a game on a Sunday and he was like the coordinator for my age group. And he would say to me, let's go and stand over there. And we would literally watch a whole game from the corner flag. And I remember not saying a single word to the group all game. And I was thinking, I'm not doing anything. They're paying me. And I'm standing here on the corner flag just watching. But, and and like I said, we didn't do it every week. But another week, it might be, right, um, for this period, get them to play in silence. Um, or for this week, nominate one player at a time who can speak. Or for this, for the next few minutes, they've got to play a, min a minimum of five touch. So he, he probably had the biggest influence on me in terms of taking risks really on a match day and using the match day as an opportunity to learn and to improve. Um, you know, we'd be defending a corner in an 8v8 game and he'd say to me, why don't you leave three up? Why don't you leave four up? And I'd say, no, we'll concede, you mad. Anyway, I, I'd do it. And we wouldn't concede. And actually, we would get so many outcomes out of it because the goalkeeper would have more room to come and claim the cross. Defenders or whoever was in the penalty area would have to defend. They weren't protected. Um, and then it allowed the attacking players to practice counter-attacking and they'd get a bit of a rest as well so that they'd have the energy to um, express themselves. So he influenced me in terms of game days and opening my mind to what you can do on a game day. So did Chris Ramsey um, at Tottenham. You know, he was the best I saw at squeezing every opportunity to develop individuals within a playing style. And um, he's influenced me the most probably in terms of the reality of the industry, the probably the not so nice bits. Um, and keeps me um, probably real. You know, he's taught me an awful lot about football, don't get me wrong, um, and his track record's as good as anybody's. But, you know, he will say to me things like, think about your kids or um, when you're making this decision about your career or, um, you know, just just 
the you know and, and and i know now what he means because i've been sacked so again probably before i was sacked i i probably thought he was being a bit dramatic when he talked to me about certain things um and you know and i've told him this to his face um that i'm one of those people that yes i'll listen to people but there's certain things that i probably probably need to experience before it really sinks in mm. And now that I've experienced um, losing my job and yes, you'll get text messages off people on the first day, the first week, but you soon get forgotten, not because people are users or people don't care about you. It's just because it's life. People get busy. You know, there'll, there'll be people now who are out of work who I haven't contacted for, for a, a week or a month. And it's not because I don't care about them. It's just because, you know, you have your you have your own life to and your own um, things to deal with. So, Chris, um, in terms of probably the reality, mm. and um, and then most recently, um, I went on um, Raymond Verhayen's courses, um, and Raymond is in the media an awful lot, um, and marmite really really in the industry um but he's he's incredibly um you know he's he's got his he's he, yeah he's got either huge admirers or people who are completely at the other end um i try and sort of see through all that and go right what can this person teach me um so i had the opportunity to go on two of his courses one was in um germany and one was in austria and not only was it the hardest, one of the hardest things I've ever done um, in terms of the hours, and, and it was such a different type of course to what I'd done before. Um, what I would say he did teach me was about attention to detail um, and about being, um, you know, your standards. Um, and, you know, he drives incredibly high standards. And I think and well, I know the reason he does it is because he wants you to then um, drive. He they're the standards that he wants you to have in front of players. Um, so I'd say more recently he has been a, an influence on me in terms of um, you know being very consistent with your methodology, regardless of whether you're feeling fresh or feeling tired, um, regardless of what day it is um you know being making sure that you're consistent and um your standards are always you know to the highest level um and you practice what you preach um so and you role model the behaviors that you expect of your players because if you don't you're 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 failing them to a degree so but you know i've, I've been lucky i've had paul holder at um my time at Crystal Palace at, and then when he was at the FA um, taught me a great deal as well. Um, and, you know, that's, and then from a human point of view, people like Gareth Southgate, you know, the humility per Mertesacker, the humility, um, you know, and I've worked with a lot of really good coaches, Paul Williams and Kevin Betsy um, at the FA, you know, I, I, I've been very lucky. I think, um, you know, I've worked with a lot of good psychologists Um in my time, Tony Strudwick, the the fitness coach, you know, went to Loughborough with him. Yeah, you know, 
you don't win the Champions League and work with Ronaldo and people like that without being very good at your job. Um, and he, he's he's taught me an awful lot on the football fitness side. So I've been very lucky, but I would say probably the uh, the biggest one was my cousin, um, just because it taught me that there's no, not only did it teach me there's no limits to what you can do in life, I experienced it. I saw it firsthand. Um, Definitely. And just on that, then, what would you say is one of the biggest challenges you faced in your coaching journey? I would, I would say when I've had jobs where I've been expected to do a lot of things at the same time would, you know, would be one of them um, because, and, and I try and use that now when I'm with staff and really ask the right questions before I then get on to, okay, we need to get this done. Um, you know, and, and really, because I think it's very easy when you're in a, a leadership role like I am now, and, for example, call a meeting at 10 o'clock mm. without actually realising, oh, hang on a minute, that member at so-and-so, in order for have a meeting at 10, they would need to leave their house at 7, yeah. traffic, etc., and they're going to be here till half nine. Um, and actually now they can't take their daughter to school. Yeah. So if you don't ask the right question, you can go, yep, 10 o'clock. Um, They'll be there, but you might not get 100% out of them. Um, whereas if you ask the right questions and have the right relationship with people, you then become aware of more things. And then you've got a choice to make. You might just say, look, no, sorry, it's 10 o'clock. I've got kids myself, but that's the way it is. Or you go, OK, when do you think the meeting should be? And they may say, well, I think if you do it at 12 o'clock, that allows da 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 and we're still getting the meeting done mm. and you're still getting people are still working nine hours, you know, and, and then you get, you bring people with you. Um, so I say that that's been a, um, that was a challenge in the past. And now I try and use that learning to make sure I don't, I, I help staff with those kinds of things. Um, particularly in the situation we've been in now, the amount of times I've been on, Microsoft Teams calls and a member of staff might have their child in the room yeah. and be apologising. And I'll say to them, don't apologise. You know, we're in this situation. Your wife's gone to work. And, you know, if you'd have told me, we, we, we could have had this meeting at a different time. You know, I've got four children myself under the age of nine. I know what it's like. Yeah. Being a parent helps you to empathise with people. Yeah. Um, and, of course, you know, my, my time... Um, you know, MK Don's, you know, was, I would say was um, a big challenge because when when you lose your job um, and a job which you work so hard to get to that point as well um, and you know your whiskers away from being a huge success and it's a club that, you know, you love and I live, I live there as well and my kids have to go to school go to school here and and then you're, you're in the back page of the um, local paper and it's saying you've lost your job and you know people will write certain things in social media which yeah. you might not read but your family will or someone will um you know you go through that process of anger and denial 
before you get to acceptance and you have to move on. You have to look forward um, and you have to accept that, you know, look at what you do have in life. And as, as cheesy as it sounds, you know, you have your health, you have your family. Um, you know, you have a lot of things which some people don't have and you had an opportunity with, and it's not to say it won't happen again. Um, and you can't feel sorry for yourself. I would say that was the hardest bit because, you know, you do have those, you know, I did, I would say you, I did, you know, you have those moments, you know, those flashbacks of certain games and um, you feel like, I felt like I let certain people down um, as well. And, um, you know, whether it be your family or the supporters or whoever it might be. Um, and, um, you know, you, you know, you, you do have to have a thick skin in football and in life. You know, yeah. Cowley came out of it this week about he loves the game, but he hates the industry and how he wants to prove that the Huddersfield managed the chairman wrong. Um, and, you know, if you haven't got a thick skin in this industry and are prepared to deal with setbacks, you know, you're in the wrong job um, because it is a very unforgiving industry and, particularly when things are going well, you know, the, the industry will soon bite you if you start thinking everything you touch turns to gold, Definitely. Uh, which is what, you know, um, I remember the, the MK Don's chairman saying to me, you know, everything you do in youth development turns to gold and for whatever reason in first team football, it hasn't. Um, you know, you, you I, I can't afford to have that mindset that that's how, that's what happens with me because people will overtake me. You know, I've got to work hard and work well every day, um, which is, for example, what I've done in lockdown. I've, I've you know, I've continued working for my club and given 110%, as I always do. But I've also tried to use this time to reflect and develop myself because I think I would have regretted it otherwise. You know, and I saw this period as an opportunity rather than oh, I'm going to have some lions and, you know, um, and um, just take, advantage, and take advantage of, you know, my club, you know, they're not going to know whether I'm working at nine o'clock or 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock. No, that's just not me. Yeah. Um, so, you know, five days out of seven, I'll be up at half five because uh, it's my best time to work. So I'll do three hours before anyone wakes up in my house and I'll work on something for myself. Um, you know, and um, that's just how I've always been. You know, I wasn't the brightest at school. Uh, my uni mates would tell you that, who I lived with. You know, I, I had to work the hardest to get my 2-1. At school, I had to work the hardest to get my GCSEs. You know, um, so, um, you know, I, that that's how I always have been, always will be. So just, you know, talking, to, you know, we touch on, you know, looking forward. As we start to wind down, I'd just be curious to know, you know, currently at Arsenal doing leads 15, 16s. You know, you've had experience working in the first team football. Well, where do you see Dan Machichi in the next three, four, three to five years? Um, well, I think it's a question that's really difficult to answer. Um, I remember being on the Premier League ECAS course and we got asked to put together our development plan and they called it the North Star, which is at the top, put where you're going to be, where you're going. But I think I've I've seen so much in the industry where 
people end up in roles just through I mean you think of what I've told you about myself where a lot of the jobs that I've got I mean ironically the Arsenal job came about on the day when MK Dons offered me a role to go back after being manager so such is my relationship with them that I was invited back to go as back as like technical director slash academy manager and literally I came out of the room and I had a missed call from somebody at Arsenal saying um, there's an opportunity here um would you, you know would you come in and speak to us and you know the these it's you you can't plan these things you know the the MK Don's job came about through various things um all the jobs you know as much as you plan I I think what you need to do I think I remember Alex Ferguson saying a, a quote to A.D. Boothroyd around um you know, work, you know, work as if you'll be here forever. Um, but be mindful that tomorrow could be your last day, something like that. Um, and I, I guess, again, now I've experienced the sack and um, I've always got Chris Ramsey in my ear about the reality of the game and um, et cetera, is you never take anything for granted. You know, things are going extremely well at Arsenal. Uh, they're incredible people. I had a son last year who was in Great Ormond Street uh, practically all summer uh, with a kidney problem and they gave me all the time off I needed and were incredible. So as human beings at Arsenal, um, you know, one of their values is act with class and I generally think they do that. Um, and they really supported me, allowed me to be myself, um, allowed me to, to um, work in, you know, my own way. Yeah in relation to the vision so um you know that everything's going really well and there's no reason to think of anything else what experience tells me is things can change at a drop of a hat you know this time tomorrow i could get a phone call from the club or saying we want you to do a different age group or you, you or it could be you know um we're gonna have to restructure or you could get a, a, a call from another club and there's an interest elsewhere. You just you just do not know. Um, and obviously, I've got a family now and, you know, you've got that to consider. So where will I be? It's a really difficult question to answer. What do I do about it's it? Safe, safe to say that you're what, very happy with doing what you're doing at the moment. Very happy what I'm doing. And all I've always made sure I do is that I make sure I'm ready for what might come. Excellent. So by developing, continually developing myself, either within my role wherever I'm working or outside of that, I make sure that I'm upskilling myself. Um, I'm the ready, best version of yourself, really, isn't it? Yeah, making sure that if where I'm working, an opportunity arose, I could give myself an opportunity. But also if something happened elsewhere, then you're ready for that as well. So I think... Um, the industry is very, I mean, Gareth Southgate is the best example. I was at Euro 2016 with him. Hopefully you won't mind me telling this quick story. And um, went to different games of him and our hotels around the corner from each other. And um, I said to him, do you see yourself as the next England manager after Roy? And he said, no. He said, um, 
you know, I, I need to manage in the Champions League first. And I said, who told you that? And I, I won't say who told him that. But and I remember saying to him again, thinking about my cousin, I said, no, listen, if you want to be next England manager, you do it, you know, and believe in yourself, etc. Anyway, he wasn't the next England manager because Salam Allardyce was. But obviously, who would ever could have written what had happened with Sam Allardyce? Mm. And then before you know it, Gareth gets four games as caretaker and then he gets the job. And now no one would ever say anything other than Gareth's the best man for the job. Mm. So that for me is just another example of it's very difficult to go, I want this job and I'm going to, you know, and this is how I'm going to get there. You've done what's around the corner. You've done around the corner. So my advice to people would be just keep up skilling yourself, go on courses, you know, go on webinars about different areas, not just technical, tactical. Um, make sure you've, you've written your own coaching philosophy. Yeah. You know, you know your purpose, who you are. Brian Ashton um, challenged me on this many years ago where he said, one side of A4. And I said, sorry. And he said, get your get your philosophy on one side of A4. So I went away and did it. because It was on about 200 slides. So I got it down to one. And then he said to me, um, what are you in one word? And I said, what do you mean? He said, what's your elevator pitch? If you were with somebody for 10 seconds in a lift, what would it be? And I looked at him and he went, Brian Ashton pioneering. And he walked out. And, you know, people like that from another sport, you know, I wouldn't have known Brian unless I went on the course that I was on. But, you know, learn those little nuggets from him. And, um, you know, have your philosophy, know your purpose, know your values, know how you train your game model, um, your player profiles, your, your periodization, know all of that. And it will benefit where you work, but it will also benefit yourself. And it's good to know, understand yourself. And and when when different opportunities come around, you're ready. Definitely. You know, Dan, just on a you know, final note, as we just, you know, come to an end of this, you know, what's been a thoroughly engaging conversation, certainly for me, and I'm sure it will be for the listeners. And he's kind of building up on what you've just said there. You know, if we get, if I had gave you 60 seconds now to leave the listeners with one golden nugget, what would that be? What would I leave them with? Yeah. Um, it, it would probably be around blaming the players last. And, and that's not saying you never blame the players, um, you know, and it's not, and it's, and it's certainly not around being soft, you know, it's, it's having a safe environment and an understanding environment. But, you know, I've always worked on the basis that they can do, they're, they're capable of incredible things. Um, and we don't, we don't need to, um, it, it's not rocket science either. It's it's really simple um, in terms of how you get the best out of them. Um, and and the first bit is relationships. It's getting to understand them, uh, make a connection with them. Um, what are their motivations? All the questions you've asked me, have you asked your players what their motivations are? What Who are their influences? What's the biggest highlight? of their football career in their life? What's the biggest setback? Um, what are their interests and etc. cetera. Um, and then, because once you've got that, then you've got a hook 
And then once you've got a hook, you can take them wherever you want to be because if they tell you their vision is to be win the Ballon d'Or, regardless of whether you think it's unrealistic or not, that's fantastic because now they've set the bar really high. Now you can be demanding in the right way um, and they're going to have high expectations of you. Ronaldo told the Man United coaches every day, I want to be the best in the world. It drove them mad. But you know what? He did it. And it and it kept the staff on their toes as well. So that, that would probably be it for me, that believe in the players and um, always look at yourself first, mm. um, as, as painful it could be at times, um, because it is the best starting point. And like I said, you know, I lost my job at my, my job at MK Dons and it'd be easy for me to say, are we players missed chances and didn't do this and do that? The bottom line is whether we whether it would have worked or not, I've told myself if I've maybe done a few more double sessions, maybe we would have scored five more goals. Mm. If we'd have scored five more goals, I might still be there. You know, and, and, and that that makes me accept the situation more. Um and and be more reflective as a practitioner. Definitely. Well, then you've you've, de- you've certainly given me a lot to you know think about and resonate with as well. Um, and I'm sure the listeners will probably be in the same in the same boat as me in that respect. Um, just on that note, you know, if, if the listeners did have any questions or any uh, you know comments on on today's discussion, is there anywhere they could get in touch with you? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm on LinkedIn. And um, my email address as well, more than happy to sh- for you to share that out with them, um, provided they're not. Um, Don't worry, I'll send emailing, emailing me to uh, hammer me. Um, um, no, I mean, listen, I'm more than happy to get feedback um, and um, support people as, as I've been supported in my journey. You know, um, I couldn't have done it without the numerous people that I mentioned to you. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Yeah, I'm 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 not on Twitter, but um, yeah, I'm I'm on LinkedIn. So feel free to send me a message on there. Fantastic. Well, Dan, I just want to say thank you again for your time this evening. It's been a very fantastic conversation. Um... You're welcome. Um, thank you for the um, you know, I always find these exercises um a good learning as well. Um, you know, the the questions uh, make you think and make you reflect. And, you know, again, I'd urge any of the listeners when you get opportunities to do these kinds of things, you know, it, it, it's time out of your day, but it's it um, it it helps you to, um, like I said, reflect and um, explain why you do what you do, which um, then helps you to um, ingrain your philosophies even more and your principles. Brilliant. Well, there you go. Thanks again, Dan. You're welcome. And um, stay safe, everybody. Um, look after yourselves and your families. Well, there you have it guys another edition of the coaches network insight series where we sit down with experienced individuals across the multiple disciplines within the coaching world hoping to explore their journeys and key insights in order to package away some golden nuggets that you can apply to help you reach your full potential i've no doubt that you've enjoyed today's episode as much as we have but i just want to say thanks again for tuning in the support is much appreciated please do get in touch with us and today's guests let us know where you're listening from to share your thoughts, views and key takeaways from today's show, along with any suggestions you may have for guests or future topics on the show that you'd like to hear discussed. Ultimately, guys, the show is about yourselves. The content is for you and we just want to continue to create that great content. On that note, 
get in touch with us on Instagram at the Coaches Network and on Twitter at the Coaches Net. And if you want to touch base with Coach Ben, he's available on Instagram and Twitter at FocusBXN. Lastly, guys, keep an eye on our socials for the latest updates and announcements for upcoming guests and discussion topics with the panel. And until next time, guys, take care. The Coaches Network, bringing the game together. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.